Yo, people, welcome to Brandpreneur, a platform that inspires the action needed to build a disruptive brand and impact the universe. Of course, I am Matt Thorne, aka Sketchy Media. And I'm Phil Kemish, aka Phil Kemish. And Brandpreneur is a place for you if you're a brand builder, an entrepreneur, just someone in a startup looking for some inspirational stories and advice, then this is the spot. Every week, we're going to unveil the tips and tricks from the people that have been there and done it. So if that's something that you're into, smash that subscribe button and treat that notification like a -a whack-a-mole and just whack it. (laughs) This week, we've got the great James Kirkham, someone we're privileged to call a mentor, and he's leading the football media revolution over at Copper 90. Yeah, we get to get up close and personal with his stories and how he sold his marketing agency, not once but twice, how he's building the football brand for the next generation. And um, how I pass off as his better looking younger brother. It's true. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, just follow us. It's been amazing to see all the comments at Brandpreneur and all the social channels. Let's get right into it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome this week and joining us for coffee, we have a real legend. Not only does he have the smoldering looks of a 90s boy band member, he founded one of our favorite social marketing agencies, Holler, which me and Matt loved, and is now running one of the world's largest independent football media companies, the amazing Copernati. Please get up for James Kirkham. So the problem with you two, <laughs> the hype is too much. You're, you're too, your natural promotion is always too much. This will only ever now be anticlimactic after a build up like that James <laughs> you, you always you always deliver my friend we've managed to see you for the last I think we've known you probably for the last, uh, eight years maybe God, eight that, years eight years no maybe a little bit less but a long time I was not even grey when I first met you <laughs> and you're still not grey which is incredible you know, fortunately I'll never go grey you can still pass as my younger brother it's fine <laughs> enough so um We've obviously first met you working at Leo Burnett, mm. which was the uh, the company that bought your first agency. Mm. Was it your first agency, Holler? Yes, yes. Um, I think about that. Yeah, it was. And it was the agency that when me and Matt started our business, we did it as a competitor. We wanted to take you out. And it was probably for it's me... It's a million pound business plan. You won. It was, the, it, was the, it was the first, one of the first real social first agencies. So like, let's just go back to Hollow start there before we get into the amazing Copper story and just talk a, a little bit about how you got into, into Hollow. Why did you start it? Um, we started, so it was myself and a friend, Will, uh, who you guys know. We, yeah. we were both working in digital agencies at the time. We were kind of young digital creatives. We started off at the end of the 90s. Like, this is a quite different yeah. era. How old so, are you yeah. then? 
we started it at 23. Um, we started working in 99. We started Holler officially in 2001. But we were freelancing out of our Brixton flat, creating like little e-cards, which I have to now explain, were like 360 by 360 squares to promote music acts like well half of which you won't know but the more famous ones being Craig David for example yeah. or early Destiny's Child stuff for Sony and these little e-cards you would send around because there was no social so you'd have to put a send to a friend mechanic in in order to send them on you'd sample the track you would see some album artwork like this is so quaint wow. to even explain no it's amazing <laughs> but it, it gives you I'm a place to start I'm just loving the pixel density 300 <laughs> by 300 like... um, yeah <laughs> I'd like to speak only in pixels so um, we kicked off in music we were freelancing out of our sort of bedroom and then we were being young precocious fools that we were decided to do it properly gave up our nicely paid jobs in advertising ironically uh, to start it for real which is where it began but our philosophy was not we knew nothing of making money yeah. you know this whole podcast is you know intimates entrepreneurialism we absolutely weren't entrepreneurs we were not kind of serial business makers or anything of the sort we just wanted to make nice things for nice people and we had i guess the early years of confidence that meant we thought we could make it and do it ourselves it was no greater science than yeah. that what did you what did you see was the gap when you started there must have been something to, to take that leap like you know to take that leap you must have gone someone's oh. not doing this very well you're inferring that we were smarter than we were <laughs> no, <laughs> no um it was it was right at the start of digital and again this makes me feel terribly yeah. old but this was pre-social media so right at the start of digital yeah. there just wasn't a lot around that looked like that mm. there were there were a few wicked agencies at the time there's one called deep end they were amazing kind of early digital uh digital design made really beautiful stuff for brands but prior to that there was lots of like digital art collectives like tomato and mm. intro and anti-rom and audio rom and both will and i were actually most inspired by anti-rom and audio rom which were if anyone, God, is listening who will recall these, they were just these fantastic almost sound designs, very much very much art, but digitally done, which for the very first time, little interactive kind of pieces. And we were inspired by that, doing better and greater versions of that in a world where there wasn't much that looked like that at the time. This is early web. Yeah. This so you, is like CD-ROM. Yeah, era, proper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the stuff we made at university was on a CD-ROM. Yeah, I've got the guys from Hi-Res. Their book is sitting on my shelf. Awesome, yeah. They, so Hi-Res were Very one of the... Similar. Yeah, fantastic. They were brilliant, actually. Yeah. They made the Requiem for a Dream website, I remember. Bless you. Sorry. <laughs> a Requiem for a Dream website, which was... Um, phenomenal like yeah. it was this beautiful interactive kind of mad sort of soundscape you just don't get stuff like that yeah i suppose with music at this time it was like a new canvas to be interactive with and you know create engagement right so yeah. this was pre the platforms it's how do we get people to have a experience that is more than just the music in a kind of creative form yeah music's not a bad actually um way of plotting the chronology of what went on too because we started in music it led to entertainment into broadcast worked for brands like red bull and stuff like that but the era of music started and i had friends at record uh, businesses and record labels at the time the last thing on any product meeting was and what are we doing online and then almost overnight the first thing in a product meeting was what are we doing on myspace so the the kind of the era of music and digital yeah. were so incredibly entwined and i always used to say and I still think so now. I still work with fans and now and fan-centric kind of strategies now. But that era of understanding digital marketing strategies, how to go and coalesce audiences and galvanize audiences and create fans and bring them together around something, that's really a music business thing. So you were, I guess, a first-generation social company 
of this era. Like you said, there was no thing before. There's no MySpace, there's no Facebook. How did you transition and like, what was like scaling that business like from two friends who started in a Brixton bedroom? What was the tip, like, how did it start to build? Is there anything you can tell us about that story? Um, gosh, there's so much around all of those yeah. uh, times. There were brilliant days. Um, the days where the record labels had money, was it? <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> we were probably paying about 600 quid for one of those e-cards I mentioned yeah. earlier. No, yeah. it wasn't. It, it certainly wasn't a flush with cash. The record business element, though, meant you had good brand names to go and speak to other people. Yeah. So when we first walked into Channel 4, we showed them work that we'd done for Universal Music or Sony Music. So you looked legit, even yeah. though you're a, a, effectively four people and a dog in a, you know, yeah. as we were then, probably yeah. Dalston office. Yeah. Um, I think we. I remember strongly each uh, era in terms of the amount of people. So being five people was you were a right little yeah. gang. It was the proper yeah. little crew of you. Fifteen actually was an amazingly magical time because you were yeah. proper and a serious kind of business. The first time you got exposure in press, you know, people like Design Week, I remember, came and did an interview with us and did, wrote really beautiful stuff and showed off some of the things that we'd been making. And that felt amazing and yeah. important for the very first time. But then you can't help but map your chronology of your business to the brands that you work with, you yeah. know, from from into broad, broadcast, I guess, made what Holler was. We were the first agency in the world to market a TV show um, using social media uh, for skins on E4, which again, I tell people that now and it looks like I'm from the Victorian <laughs> times. Do you know what I mean? Like, how can that even be? But again, that was kind of contra deals with MySpace, putting up content for the first time for fans to see prior to watching it on air, which was kind of novel in 2003, 2004. Yeah. Was that on MySpace TV or was it YouTube at that time? That was MySpace, uh, um, which were when even those guys, which again, doesn't f feel possible in a world of the all-encompassing power of, say, Facebook, you could kind of break MySpace then. I don't know if you yeah. remember, but you, know, you mm. could kind of do tricks with people who work there and do things for the very first time to sort of break the platform and thus get loads of kind of people as a consequence. So yeah, the, you know, um, the growth of the business very much aligned to the brands that you work with and gradually things like awards and then moving from areas like music into more grown-up stuff, I get working with big multinationals, Procter & Gamble, and eventually, you know, years and years working with lots of Red Bull, Innocent Drinks and... I think it grows with the stature of the client that you're working with. Was there, was there a tipping point in those clients where the one client that you went, actually, this is really going to work, this is really worth something? The worth something bit implies monetary, whereas I think the majority of the time it was it was more about the substance, what you've made. I remember we did a project with Samsung once, for example. It just felt very grown up. Do you know what I mean? It mm. felt like we were doing something new. Likewise, with Eurostar, of all people, we, we kind of collaborated with a with a kind of a an offshoot ad agency called TBWA Upstart, head, um, who were ran by a guy called Andrew Sturk, who's now the head of planning at Facebook, actually. He's a brilliant guy. He used to be CEO of an ad business, and um, he was kind of working with us. And he, he sort of saw something in what was this young holler business that was genuinely creative and interesting to entrust the client of Eurostar, which was effectively a big multinational client, into the hands of these kind of 15 or 20 people as we were then in Farringdon. Things like that were very grown up. You're making beautiful work, but it was like, this is actually proper now. Yeah. <laughs> what was what were some of the, I guess, the problems you faced scaling an agency business? Um, I wonder if they're quite similar to some of the stuff we face. Uh, is there anything you remember being like, wow, this is a real challenge? And I think in the early days, it? you know, we didn't have money. I think you sp a lot of people I speak to now, I think... 
the subject of entrepreneurialism now is so much more commonplace and understood. And mm. as I said, we definitely weren't entrepreneurs. We all might disagree and think we were. I just don't believe we ever were. It wasn't endemic in our DNA or mm. personality. Um, we just we had confidence and wanted to make nice things for ourselves as much as anything else and work with nice people. And those kind of ingredients led us to sort of where we got to. Um, I see so many people now who kind of going, great, I've started this thing and I've got this investment or it's like, wow, you've got that investment. Like we did have an investment, but it was 20 grand uh, from two guys who were the early investors in the business who kind of saw talent and thought they'd want to be a part of it. We eventually bought them out for kind of much more than that. I'm super happy and proud that we were able to. But that carried us for years. You know, we were still paying people on at the end on a Friday in cash that we could get out of the cash machine of the bank sort of three years in like that. Yeah. We didn't know any other way. That was very much the early days of running a business. And I'm not sure that's always the case now. Maybe there's just more support or structure or around it. I don't know. But I I hear very differently when people are talking about startups. And it's like, wow, that feels like a different startup to the one we were running. Yeah, I mean, people raising 14 million <laughs> That's what I mean. like in six months. Like, yeah. I guess people didn't know what you were doing. I think there was, yeah. at that point, you were probably like winning contracts and people going, what are these kids doing? Yeah. Like, I think like we felt like that a little bit when we first started. Yeah, and I like, suppose people the people like, that are around you aligned to the same kind of thing. And I very much look at ourselves similar to what you were saying about uh, you and Will. Like We we never looked and going, oh, we're, we're going to be entrepreneurs. We just wanted to make cool shit for cool brands and cool people. And actually... A bit of a bit a big piece of brand entrepreneur is about that side of stuff. Nice. We want to do great <clears throat> shit for great people, mm. and you smashed it with with that saying. You said that really early on, and something that resonates with me because we started in music. We wanted to work with artists because they were cool. We wanted to make their artwork look great. We wanted to help them mm. with a marketing campaign. Mm. So it was never about money for us. And actually, the people that were around us at that time believed in the same thing. They wanted to work for great mm. artists mm. and mm. stuff. So it kind of isn't a business yeah. for, for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And I, I resonate but, with the sentiment of the cash. But there must have been a time in the hollow journey where it became a business because you had to start thinking about turnover, revenue, EBITDA. You're looking yeah. at how do you scale this? Yeah. So when did you start growing up maybe? When did you, when did the business start growing up? And in terms of time now, what year are we Gosh. in? From your start, maybe four or five years in, something like that. I'm so probably going to get mid 2000, yeah. 2006 or something. Like yeah, that. I'm probably going to get the date slightly wrong, but that mm. feels about right. I mean, you're always taught that thing that you you finally stop worrying about cash flow cash flow after five years, and I think that's true. Mm. I remember we then had a meeting with someone who's been my kind of ad hoc business advisor for years ever since, and he sort of looked at the business and he effectively taught us and said, "You do know you could make some money out of this," and we were like, "Really?" Genuinely had no <laughs> clue beyond our own salary, which is incredibly modest but yeah we had no idea that oh right you can sell businesses you can <laughs> like but, and it's incredibly naive and i find it sort of sweet that we ever <laughs> had such a lack of understanding like that but i guess the reality of conversations like that suddenly make you grow up fairly sharpish and it wasn't like we weren't running it we obviously had our bookkeepers and people doing what they needed to in terms of the finances but it was suddenly probably putting the things in place to turn it real and that business advisor then talked to a certain profit number at the time I recall and he said come back to me when it's X yeah I can't remember exactly what it was but then I remember we did go back sort of a year later and said it's that man he's like right now it's interesting and you can start having conversations and I think you can't help but therefore think of all sorts of the associated structures and employment details and everything that needs to go into the business at that point that moves it very very different from sort of yeah. six people when you're hanging yeah. out together all the time we're all young as what, well. what were you at that point number wise and kind of probably about 25 people something like that 
But again, even then, that's different. You've suddenly got little management layers and project management structures and things like that. And, and are you looking at profitability of your clients at that point? Are you going, we've got to hit... 40% gross profit on on this project like how what was the less less it? margin we were always in the early years still obsessed with just making the best possible work and the business came second which sounds again ridiculously kind of ignorant it's, it's definitely not something you should teach people <laughs> Um, but we were so obsessed with just making a lovely product that it would be quite ridiculous some of the overspend that we'd do internally just to make it look amazing because I think our overriding belief was always that it'll be this that attracts the business that comes to us it'll be this that does the marketing for us it's this great piece of work that people will actually care about and give a shit about and come back to work with you which is more important than that kind of 10% margin difference. Plus, we didn't know our margin was. <laughs> We've had a bit of experience with the messy side of, of merging into business. Yeah. When you first sold mm. the business, was it was it an accident? Did you intend to sell it? Was It, it was sort of an accident in the respect that, um, gosh, we were starting a business in Australia, the uh, Hollis Sydney, it still exists, actually. Oh. Um, and... We were over there doing some kind of prep work, as it were, and meeting some people and recruiting. And someone came up to me at a like industry party and started talking. And then they said, "Oh, such and they knew someone who would be really keen to buy our business." And I said, "I, de- I find that unlikely because <laughs> we haven't really even begun here in this country." Mm-hmm. And the conversation evolved and kept evolving. And we kept thinking, "Nah, that's not going to happen." And these guys kept coming back over to London and eventually we put a price on it and they bought it and much to our almost surprise wow and um unfortunately though and i I won't be listing all of the names and how this kind of worked but it ended up being a it ended up being a kind of almost a how-to guide of sort of not to either run business or or whatever it was um the, the the kind of the mothership was a had a kind of slightly shambolic end they were probably too over ambitious and um it meant that cut a long story short we ended up buying the business back off them um and effectively regaining control of, of what we had and starting so, and at this point you'd how many years and how old were you oh god like i'm just trying to get a context of timeline of i must have been um late 20s uh maybe 30 Maybe so, it was, yeah, maybe so I was, no, no, eight, I was 30. You're only seven or eight years in, basically, really, maybe be. less than that. Like, you're I not, think so. Terrible. And you've bought, you've bought shares back from the first person, bought your company back from the next yeah. person. So you've gone through a lot in that period yeah, yeah, of time. Yeah. Like, I mean, and it's quite distracting, I mean, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, you sort of forget about all the stuff that you're meant to be doing, all the bit that we've just started on about yeah. making great work for great yeah. people. And did a lot change then from that sale? Did they change the business? Like, were you in it still? Were you out of no, it? No, it was, it, was it was far more boring than that. It was to do with the sort of structure of the earnout and things like that 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 they were unable to kind of keep to the terms to and it just became it just became a bit nonsensical and we mm. were given some uh, great help and advice who were enabled us to effectively get back what was then Holler London back in our control yeah. and start the process all over again that's one of the things I always remember about Holler is that the brand stood for something I remember looking at the work I remember looking at the branding and the way you approached it similar to when we started Disrupt like we wanted to mean something we wanted to like, have, a, have a, a symbol a status um, when you how important was it to you the brand like how, how did that culture how, how did that resonate with the people that worked for you and then you as a person like Holler it ended up being hugely important. It's something I really carry with me. But again, I don't think we ever set out with the, uh, the sort of design to go, we're going to make a great culture. Mm. Culture evolved from the people you employed. So maybe it just comes from the way you staff up. Yeah. I always remember a, f- a very early choice of, of candidates. 
and they were they were on paper like identical. They they were for a kind of a programmer, but like one of our first ever developers we employed. And the guy we employed had a, de- a degree or a master's in zoology because I found that to be the brilliant point of difference between uh, the other chap, if you like, who was yeah. just a developer without the zoology. <laughs> um, and that guy was actually the guy who ended up founding Hollis Sydney and has become a brilliant entrepreneur in Australia and all of this stuff. So it's been a really kind of success story there. Point being, I think you always try and find people that you think are going to add something. Yeah beyond what they've got on a LinkedIn page yeah. or do you know what I mean yeah. beyond the CV it's what's the character what's the what's the juice that they're adding and all of that juice ends up making culture right yeah. personalities uh, make business yeah in a way, don't absolutely they? and that makes culture and culture is the hardest thing to try and like when you see it differently when it goes or when you walk into a place without it it's I find yeah. it, uh, it actually troubles me I find yeah. it, it's sort of you sold the second time um, this time to uh, Leo mm. Burnett um, and I, and what was the process? Like, let's not talk about the process internally about selling a business. More about like you, you've talked about in an interview before losing the culture and what it's like to sell to a bigger agency. Because did you get swallowed up into? Did Holly get swallowed up into? Did you lose the brand or was it? In you, the end, so I remember it was Leo Burnett. Your, your first email you sent yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, uh, we're speaking just for myself. We definitely yeah. don't have regrets about selling to Leo Burnett. Leo Burnett, a part of Publicis, one of the world's biggest kind of advertising groups, as many of the people on the listen. Uh, on the pod, listening to the podcast will know yeah and for a while you can retain culture and actually everything that they wanted to buy is kind of what they want to infect in a positive way their business with it's enthusiasm and young excitable creative talent and types floating around a bigger kind of mothership and hopefully kind of changing it positively i think unfortunately the way a lot of advertising groups and agencies are currently set up that that positive infection is not an easy thing to continue certainly without the people maybe starting it, but certainly without permission too of the wider group. It's just not easy to act in such a, frankly, entrepreneurial way, doing things at speed, pretty agile. There are just so many kind of counter practices to the old school way of an ad structure working that... That means sadly, yeah, it got a bit diluted uh, in the end, and and it, and it, it's and culture is probably one of the first things to go. Mm. I think, and I can't remember what the interview was that you're referring to, but maybe the thing I I might have pointed out is I took my eye off the ball of what yeah. of that bit. So, yeah, you said you went away, you went travelling, you right. were doing a lot of travelling, and when you came back, people had left, the yeah. culture had changed, and the essence of. Well, I was, yeah, I was given a job, which was a global role, which meant you spent a lot of time on planes doing talks in like lovely places like Buenos Aires and San Paolo and fighting the good fight, or so you thought, but you were massively taken there off the ball of the day-to-day at work. And you know what's going on is, as you boys mm. will absolutely kind of understand, as soon as you do that, you need to put, there's so much effort that you need to put in on an almost daily basis to keep that mm, feeling and yeah. cultivate that feeling of culture and yeah. just enthuse excitement and yeah. passion and just the little things. Yeah. And as soon as you're just mucking about on, you know, expensive flights, thanks to an ad agency all around the world, then you can't sort of do that. And it's a shame. And I didn't realise that at the time. And it was only after it kind of dissipated that I had realised what had been missing. I suppose it's just part of you growing as well, though, right? It's going through that natural transition of growth within yourself where you go to the next level. And I suppose that's uncomfortable and that's going to leave things changed. And and, and it's a positive thing, I I believe, but also I can understand how it does have that effect. Yeah, you wouldn't say no to being offered the job, but being offered the job and doing the job then led me to realise what it is I actually like to do, which is being closer again to the people and being a part of things. And eventually led to what I'm doing now today. But 
the world that I had there for a couple of years is not one that I'll probably ever mm. go back to. It's slightly mm. bizarre, slightly removed. <laughs> yeah. You're basically like Clooney in that film where you're just sort of jetting about doing stuff. It's very lonely, actually. It's quite mm. an isolated, strange kind of role, whereas actually I suddenly realised, oh, God, no, I love to yeah. be right in this team. I think you're similar to, I think, how me and Matt, like, we started the business as two mates from a bedroom, similar story, and then... Like you talked about being lonely and having that next job role of being the global head of mobile or whatever you were, I remember mm. the title, job title. What was that like with one, starting a business with somebody? Because I think a lot of people are, are trying to do business on their own or they have teamwork. But what was that relationship like with having a business partner and what that means over did, the course did he of... Did have a different... Uh, what was his role? So as two business partners, you, you sell your business, you get swallowed in and... Where do you, what trajectory does that put you and your business partner on? Because I um, imagine you had different roles. It was, yeah. And it was quite separating. There was a third guy as well, a guy called Simon, who was brilliant kind of marketeer, if you like, at the time. And you do turn from, you are so tired before that as a business, I mean, as in your, as you guys will well testify, you know, when you're in that bit of the journey, when you're sort of either part of the earn out or you're basically gunning it in every mm. single respect, you know, you're a very kind of tight unit. So when that starts to get fragmented because of different roles or different uh, moving to different areas, it, yes, it is. It is a separating kind of piece. Um, I think what's interesting is that I can't imagine starting a business on my own. I can imagine doing things on my own, like. <laughs> I love this. I love mm. podcasting. I'd love to do that. Yeah. But I need people around me, like clever yeah. people who can, you know, work the mics and stuff like that. But the point is, um, I can't imagine doing something as big as starting a business. I know people do it all the time. Yeah. But I just think I'm amazed because I just always needed that person to speak at or to or sound stuff uh, or be a sounding board with or I can't imagine any other way. And mm. we sort of started as two. We became three. I actually think three is a brilliant number because you always get a resolve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I would kind of, I'd say that was quite a good learning, actually. We always found that, you know, you'd always end up with a 2v1 and it's, I don't mean that, an adversary. And when you're looking for the two other people, what are you looking for? That's quite neat because people go like, three, great, what do I need? Three people like me or three people like... Well, I think, again, the obvious template is, hey, we go and find our complementary skill set. You're the creative, I'm the suit, and that guy's whatever's left. <laughs> um... <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> yeah. when Will and I started, that was just a very much a chemistry, brotherly. We got on on a massive scale and knew we could work together. And that's the big thing. Can you work together? Yeah. Can you basically spend obscene amounts of time with somebody? Because that's what it is. More than any relationship you'll ever have. No, it's, it's absurd, true. right? It's, you it's know. true. It's, 15, it's, it's, it's definitely more intense than an yeah. actual relationship. Um, yeah. I mean, you're bearing uh, the scars in front yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. I've pro <laughs> probably slept with Matt more than the last two years than most women. So, like, definitely. Uh, and Matt looks traumatised and troubled. But, it, but it's, a, yeah, it's a hard time. It, it is. You are, you are quite literally inseparable. I remember in the early days of Pollock, you it was seven days a week every single week of every month of at least a couple of years like you know inclusive of Sundays that's all you do and you thought that was you, it was it was normality I guess the point I'm making is we then the, the third guy kind of joined us Simon he very much did have the complementary skills he had a set of skills that we didn't have he was very much arguably more on the world you all know better it was very much more promotion and marketing and ability to understand early influences and stuff like that and we didn't really have those chops in those days so that was a bit more of a strategic, he would be the great kind of third part. Point being... But it I'm wasn't business. He didn't come on board to help. On no, the I think business aspect. was shared. So those 
both of those two did a lot of the business. I did more the outbound business. Point being, you you evolved too. You know, I started life as a creative, but we sort of sat down in the early years and realised it was a complete waste of time because I wasn't a brilliant designer, frankly, and I was better going than when I was speaking to clients. So it was right that you could have that evolution yeah. and allow for that. And that's why I mean, I think you could almost overthink it. If you can mm. get on brilliantly with someone and you can put the hours in with someone without any problem, then I think that's all the ingredients you need. The rest will look after yeah. itself. Um, so when you come out of the agency, you've now done what, a five year term? Mm. Yeah. That's quite term. term. Like a prison sentence. You did, you did, you did <laughs> I feel, your sentence. I feel like it's a, t- sorry. It I sounds like a prison sentence. That's how you term. put though, isn't it? It's a term, like yeah, a, in the actual contractual. I don't know yeah. whether that's because it feels did, like. Did you it, know what you wanted to do? When well, you, you taught me, no, you taught me the word golden handcuffs. And I've never heard that sentence before. Before you said to me golden handcuffs and I was like what is that and you're like well you have to something be you should never do <laughs> like, like, yeah and I, I don't know people don't know the term but it's basically when you get contracted to work at an agency mm. that you have sold but you have to basically mm. be there for an amount of time so let's take it back to basic people might not, might not know about that we didn't know about that so you have to be there to run it to make sure that it works as a earn out you get money if you hit your targets I guess but that's golden handcuffs or something mm. I'm pretty sure you went we did were I? like what is that and then you went this is what it is gosh I think just for, you know for clarity yeah. I, there was hard, it was only at the very very end that I not want to be there anymore mm. it wasn't like a we, we kind of joke about the, the notion of term but it, it genuinely wasn't that like three year own out was a blast because we were at the peak of our powers mm. and the two years after that was the bit where my job was different so that was also alright until the end because it was like oh this is new yeah. this yeah. is interesting I'm meeting some pretty interesting big dogs here around the world but it kind of, it was very much all of a sudden where I came home and realized I'd become quite a different person and quite negative and antagonizing in kind of board meetings and more problematic than helpful, frankly. And it was just seemed to be counter to my character. So yeah. I kind of handed my resignation in mm. without a plan. Did you have a, without a plan so at no all? Plan. No plan. But wow. did, you, did you have an idea of where you would go from there? Or was that no. a daunting time for you? Yeah, most like shit. I personally had that feel because I think when we when we you know at that point where you go, I don't know what I want to do next is quite difficult. Um, Did you go through that? Yeah, you know, I didn't have a clue, honestly. Um, and I think I was a bit uh, probably all over the shop at the time. And um, I think I just knew that it was no longer right. I felt actually a bit disingenuous as well with some of the brilliant people who were still there in the agency who I think thought it would be all right because I had a, uh, this kind of leadership position within the wider group. And yeah, I was actually being very, I had an inability, if you like, to affect at that point. And I didn't necessarily believe in the direction, not in a too dramatic way, but it was like, look, it's probably time. But no, so I came out and then thought, okay, <laughs> what shall I do now? And then I just entered into a series of talks and chats and um, met people that I know, people that I knew less well. I went start a conference in Ibiza <laughs> an anti-conference did, did start to try and remember what it is that you love doing yeah probably I got close to that towards the end again realising with the realisation that I wanted to closely be involved with people working again as opposed to so removed yeah mm. But I didn't know where. I mean, I was looking at anything at the time, genuinely. You know, I looked at my friend's music business and learned a little bit about how they worked. And I talked to my friend who was in fashion works, learned a little bit about how they worked. And I interviewed at places like Snapchat at the time, which probably would have been the obvious destination, actually. Global head of social and mobile or whatever it was into a platform role would probably be obvious. And I think I went to Facebook and stuff like that. But um, uh, then I had a chance lunch with a good friend of mine, Tom Thurwell, 
who was running a CEO of what was then called Big Balls Media, who had this business, Copper 90, and they just acquired a, a business in the States, and he was spending a lot of time in New York, and he needed someone to run the UK business. But it took us about 45 minutes of this lunch before, whilst I was sort of saying, I'm not sure what I'm doing now for a career, him saying he's desperately looking for someone to run the business. And it's sort of at the end of the chicken and chips, he was like, I suppose you could do this, can you? <laughs> and we genuinely danced around it for so long without realising that that was staring us in the face. Good first date. Very good first date. <laughs> And did you go straight into working there? What was your first initial role? You were head of, was it? Yeah, so I ran the the UK part of the business. So there's there's a brilliant team at Copenhagen. There's a guy called Ross, who's COO. There's uh, this Tom, who's CEO. There's there's a whole bunch of brilliant characters at the top of the business. The, Tom's done very well to kind of, I don't know, it's almost like he, you know, he, he anchors a lot of brilliantly talented people who come kind of close and then are part of this thing. So yeah, these guys were sort of running the States at the time and they just needed someone really to come in and help help galvanize and give greater structure and greater direction probably to what we were doing then in London mm. and when I walked in it felt like um, it felt very homely without sounding too sort of you know cheesy. cultural fit was right yes yeah it reminded me of those brilliant days of holler where you had gosh how many was it then let's say 50 very young people very brilliant half of which just didn't know how good they were. They would show you some of the work that they were working on, some of the content that they made and the films they were coming up with. And you're like, bloody hell, this is brilliant. It was all about the doing. Mm. And it, that had been forgotten in my last year or two of kind of Adland where it was so hypothetical and a million kind of PowerPoint decks before the project would just seep away and go into nothingness. No output. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's yeah. the thing that we've yeah. learned. Kills yeah, yeah. A lot of people doing absolutely nothing. nothing. Yeah. Kills you. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yeah, yeah, no. And it was a creative business, I guess. A copper was creating content. You had a team of people there you could bounce off Mm. of. And was it? Did it feel different than you weren't the founder? So did it feel different going into a leadership position and not being something you had created, or was it quite an easy transition because you just wanted to be part of something? Um, Probably the latter, actually. I mean, they were they were wonderful in the respect that so it's three years ago now, and Mm. I think they welcomed me in to allow me to give me a lot of autonomy 
Yeah, but but I didn't want to change too much. It was, I mean, it had this brilliant. You knew it in those mm. days, didn't you? It had this great special source and kind of magic to it that meant that it was more about giving them a refreshed north star in those days. Three years is such a long time, though. Like yeah. this, this could be frankly a decade ago. I'm describing. Yeah, it feels like it's changed so much again. It, but that's what Holler did. It changes so much every single year. You have to evolve every single year. You don't sit there in January and go, how are we going to evolve? But you've it got to shapeshift so much. And we do as a business right now. You can't be at that supposedly bleeding edge uh, without doing that. You can't. We could have sat there three years ago and said, we're just going to do this. We're just going to make some nice episodic series for brands and we'll gradually grow our audience. The entire problem of Copper 90 is our ambitions are so grandiose. <laughs> like what, we, what, what, just for people that don't know, maybe we skipped over this a little bit, but what, what Copper 90, what is it? And what is that mission at the moment where you are at now and in, going into 2019? Um, so Copper 90, Copper 90 is a football business, but it's, as well, I put it this way, I described to my mum and dad as football for young people. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in a world where most people, you know, sort of turn off to the old kind of guys in ties studio format of what, football ever was we are everything else so it, it begun life brilliantly way before i joined uh, as everything outside the 90 minutes that makes the 90 matter more it was born on youtube so it was born in this era it now lives everywhere um it's a distributed media business um it, it does a lot of views like three quarters of a billion views in a single month over the world cup uh and it doesn't show any football <laughs> which wow. is the bit that people are like sorry <laughs> so it's not football <laughs> um, it's it's everything we, I've got a belief we have a belief that football is at the heart of pop culture right now you know mm. Kylian Mbappe was on the front cover of Time magazine the other week like transfers are announced by in, announced by international kind of rock pop grime stars right yeah. you know the whole shtick like yeah. football is right there and I believe it's the the only other common denominator on the planet is music. Football and music galvanise, unite like nothing else. So yeah, so being at the heart of that and what it can do. So it's like, we have three offices now, London, New York and LA, 120 people I think it is worldwide. We work for brands like Nike and Uber and Adidas and it's a, a lot of fun. All, all we do is football. <laughs> and what's the, the core of the business now is obviously it's transitioned from just being a YouTube channel, yes. which I imagine was funded at some point in the start to get that That's off. Right. Probably through the YouTube grants, wasn't it? It was. It was a YouTube Originals program back in the day, nearly six years ago now. Is that right? Five or six years yeah. ago. Is it around that? Yeah. yeah. So how has it transitioned away from YouTube? Like as a business, when you're starting it, you, you've got this idea to create this channel. How do you turn that into a global media business? Well, Tom and Ross and the guys, I think were smart enough to realize that YouTube is, um, is great for building audience, not so great for building a business. The yeah. money you get, a lot of people, a lot of young people, maybe you listen to, you know, you sort of follow people like you two mm. who might be starting channels think, great, and the money pours in. It just doesn't. It's, and that's not a detriment to the platform. This would be impossible for yeah. them to mm. fund at such an extreme level so many yeah. millions of people. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not the business model. So it was always about the work that you could do to entice and excite brands too. So we, you know, for brands endemic in football, be it Amstel or Heineken or Carling or Adidas or Nike or, you know, name whoever you want that we work with, they have football problems. They have uh, solutions that need to be found because they sponsor the Champions League or yeah, they sponsor yeah. the World Cup, whatever that might be. And you make work for them. Likewise, other brands like Uber, it was about making their brand more human through football, which I really love that side of it, yeah. where you start to enable 
you know, their whole problem was they're more utility than loved. And football, as per NBA, as per music, was one of the passions that they used to bring about that kind of fandom and love. Yeah. And I wanted to touch a little bit on uh, something that I saw you talking about with your your son um, (laughs) and uh, that TV. So we grew up watching Match of the Day and that was where we got our football nutrition. It was like every Saturday you you have that kind of pre-programmed into you. Like... When your ha- team's in the Premiership. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, time Derby. Long time ago. <laughs> Don't always have that. <laughs> that luxury. Um, and, um, got, haven't you got football on Quest with Colin Murray? Yeah, but I've, I've, wa- I've watched the highlights by then. It's fine. I've watched a dodgy stream. Yeah. Or, you know. So how... Okay, well, the, I, yeah, I, I, I think I was going to anticipate it. your question. Just, how yeah. are you watching those highlights? Uh, the highlights and Sky Sports. Oh, you do? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, Sky Sports. Probably during the game on Twitter as well, someone's... Yeah. I mean, the football league has completely changed even in the last 24 months. Mm. The fact that there's people that are sitting there and can watch the stuff real line, uh, real time through the club's platforms like our own, If especially if you're abroad, it's obviously a little bit easier. Yeah. I follow. Now Sky have literally got it on every game on yeah. in the week. It's completely changed from a fan perspective and very quickly you're talking 24 months that's like Like the whole even this season is dramatically different Mm. to last season from a Mm. fan perspective Mm. I feel like I'm well covered Mm. 100% of the time I can watch something but how that's affecting the clubs is a a different story I definitely can see the effect that that's having Mm. and I think how I was going to talk about how it's affected people consuming Mm. content so you talk about your son just not watching TV at all I I probably shouldn't predicate into our business models on my nine-year-old boy yeah. but <laughs> they're amazing canary in the coal mines for what's i remember when i joined three years ago and i was sort of looking at his early habits then and it was so brilliantly different to everything that i ever was but you know if you take anyone under the age of 30 so if we widen it from jacks who's nine if you're under the age of 30 we believe you've had your education in football through gaming now that's well different to when i was young because gaming simply wasn't so prevalent and it certainly didn't have the power that it does now. So what that means is you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the game. So if you play FIFA or you've grown up on Football Manager, you have an understanding of the game that is far deeper and greater than any other time in basically in human history. And that means you're less tribal. You're less, for example, it's more less than... It's not just about... Uh, I follow Derby and I know about the FA Cup in England. Yeah. The chances are, if you are under the age of 30, you will know about La Liga and Major League Soccer. You'll probably be aware of Borussia Dortmund in the Bundesliga. Yeah. If you're people like my son, who's obsessed, he'll wear his Schalke shirt or his kind of <laughs> Bayer Leverkusen is on its Christmas list. Or this year on its Christmas list is River Plate uh, and Boca Juniors, for oh, example. Uh, you know, and, but it's not... Is that from your documentary? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's feeding off of my everything I'm showing him. But, um, but but they have this brilliantly um, encyclopedic knowledge of the game. They game before the game. They role play games prior to watching real games. They it's just football. There's no online or offline. There's no gaming or real life. You know they. Uh, I used to find it almost bizarre some of the terminology they use when they describe themselves they play a lot of real football but they describe themselves using you know terms like amc and dmc and using vernacular and language born from fifa and football manager to describe their positioning they're hyper aware of tactics for example again because they can leverage them and use them in the game and it's the crossover in the real world's fascinating but then it's not just them you know adidas's second most engaged ad of the predator boot in the last uh, year, which is the Beckham boot, by the way, the David mm. Beckham boot, was was an advert where Alex Hunter, the 
fictional avatar of FIFA is holding up a Predator boot. And that's wow. because there is it is just a completely blurred line. And that's yeah. just gaming. I mean, yeah. there's, there's so much from the cultural crossover stuff we talked about. Bamiang's transfer to Arsenal was announced by Playboy Carti kind of crossover. We, we all know the Stormzy Pogba yeah. piece that almost started a, a, a whole new genre, if you like. Like the music crossover. We, it's something Copper 90 have always done way before me. We have... Yeah. Shows like FIFA and Chill and yeah. Poet and Vooj, people yeah. that you guys know are yeah. big in grime and, yeah. you know, GRM. And, yeah. and it's a very seamless transition. It's yeah. very natural then that they're going to get their yeah. mates Crepton Conan on. Yeah. Football's you, almost an aside in that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Do you think this has happened in the States already with some of the bigger sports, like NFL, NBA? There's a leaning towards that. I mean, I remember like yeah. the hip hop and basketball being a massive thing. Yeah. Like it's kind of, that's always happened, hasn't it? But this is kind of football is now really taking yeah. a precedent and this is a way that it's leaning I towards. So. I think NBA is a brilliant exactly. example. Yeah. NFL argument. streaming on Twitter. Yeah. Like there's some really yeah. good examples of them setting benchmarks of what content Absolutely. should be. Yeah. Well, the media's moved along, but actually those cultures have been a lot more intrinsically ingrained with the scenes. Mm. I, I think there's a thing in uh, in America for a long time where anyone who was a rapper wanted to be a basketballer. They were like the failed basketballers mm. yeah. and all the basketballers are like failed yeah. rappers. <laughs> like this crossover. Yeah. And we haven't really had that over here in England, maybe because of the culture. Well, but the footballers now are the rappers. Now like, it's completely this- changed. Now I feel I feel like so. we've caught up with that. I feel like the Lingards are doing the dances. They want to be cool. They want to be yeah. friends with the Crepton Conans. And that's a big shift from football, uh, culturally for me, from what I've seen. Totally. It's such a shift. So that strength of personality of Jesse Lingard is amazing. You know, I used to have posters on my wall when I was 10 years old and that was as close as you could get to your players but now if you're a teenager and you've got Jesse Lingard on your Snapchat and he's effectively Snapchatting you in the audience he's interfacing directly with you you don't need media to tell you how to feel about them as a player you'll make up your own mind that strength of personality becomes a huge thing like people like Hector Bellerin and Patrice Evra and Jesse Lingard are incredible masters of their own character. Mm. Benjamin Mendy yeah. walking around Great. cup finals, the GoPro balling yeah. around, yeah. sticking yeah. it out online with this swagger and yeah. hip hop soundtrack. Yeah. And it's like, he was like a, a pop promo yeah. in itself. Well, he was incredible on the Man City. The, the, Amazing. The, I mean, like he, I, I didn't know anything about him and I yeah. just, I'd watched that and was like, this guy, now you're just into ha- I'm into that. I mean, I'd, yeah, I don't want to tell you I'm a City fan now because you're going to hate me. But like no, but that, that show made me really understand yeah. and feel like emotionally connected, which that is a relationship I'd never be able to have absolutely. with Mendy. Absolutely, football has been quite, other than the Beckhams of the world, it's been quite sheltered from that side of 100% life for, for a long time. And now it's a cult of individual. And as much as you will have people following teams, it's very natural that young people will have as Zlatan written on their back for Paris Saint-Germain shirt of three seasons ago, even though they're not a PSG supporter, they're a Zlatan fan. Yeah. Mm. Following that individualism is a kind of increased Mm -hmm. uh, part of it the final point on that which is interesting in your world is that um so we have someone uh, like Poet who presents our shows like Fifa and Chill Mm -hmm. comments below fantastically kind of vociferous kind of polemic brilliant kind of outspoken guy big on big music Puma approached him to only this is what two months ago Puma approached him to design a football boot that football boot he designed it's a really beautiful boot we then talk about it on FIFA and Chill with Hector Bellerin the Arsenal player uh, it was then worn that weekend by Marco Anatovic when he sunk my beloved Man United with those very boots <laughs> but the internet like explodes filthy fellas and GRM report yeah. on it and you know Copper 90 obviously and 
smart brands leverage smart influence, yeah. not influence, smart influence in a smart way to get these ecosystems speaking and talking and conversing in a way that some people can't even touch. What's, and at the heart of it all is football. What's really good about that is the attention piece. You're capturing attention at that point. And one of the things we've always advocated is it's not about influencers. It's about capturing the attention, the attention that influences. And I think... That, for me, nails it on there. Mm. That's what you got to do. You have to be part of a conversation. You have to earn mm. the right to be spoken about. And actually, that's a really interesting way of, yeah. of putting it. I love it. that. Well, the um, uh, poet's partner in crime and a lot of the shows some people might have seen is this guy, Vuj, David Vianich. He's a brilliant guy, absolutely fantastic. Uh, very smart guy. And he was, he was speaking, I was interviewing him at a conference, actually, in front of a kind of a room of sort of sports suits, as it were. <laughs> And he was saying exactly that. And also, that's where a brand is being smart. They're not just saying, hey, mate, can you come and do this? And I'm going to pay you some money and you just stick a message out. Yeah. They genuinely think what it is that's going to move and excite that yeah, person yeah. with influence. And they're going to engage them creatively. And they get so much back as a consequence. So much love. And that an ecosystem, as I say, is almost born as a consequence of that rather than just going hey guys here's five grand can you say this message which yeah. is just a transactional perfunctory thing that as we all know doesn't wash yeah um just talking about attention a little bit we we talk about people having no attention now mm. everyone's got the the attention span of a goldfish mm. and i mean something that you don't believe and like what, what i hate that yeah <laughs> i just think it's so like demeaning for young people it's always yeah. young people you see yeah, the headlines. yeah young people have zero attention or like my two examples, well, just just last weekend, yeah, the, a new Copper 90 film went out. It's 55 minutes long, and I love that. I mean, it, mm. it needs to be. We didn't try and make it 55 minutes. It was a story of the uh, the super classico between uh, Boca Juniors and River yeah. Plate, and it's this unbelievable story of Argentinian football, but it's basically a human interest story. It's, it's way beyond football. It's the politics around it. Anyway, it's, it's worth watching, but mm. guess what? It warrants 55 minutes because there's an awful lot of stories to be told, and it was this much delayed kind mm. of final but we have no problem putting that out and i uh, i know recently when was this probably half a year ago there was a media agency fortunately i can't remember who it was so they'll remain on there <laughs> but they released like a, a very small six second i think it was ad format and you know much to the kind of industry's acclaim of oh that's a great idea young people have really tiny attention spans so let's produce a really small ad format to ensure that we can kind of counter that and it's like, hold on, let's just work through what you're saying. So you're saying it's, so on that basis, if attention spans, according to your metrics, continue to decrease, next year, what, we'll put out a three-second ad format? Year after that, should we do a one-second ad format? And we'll all be slapping ourselves <laughs> yeah, in the back. 100%. And we'll all be going, yeah, but it's wicked, Mr. Clark, the view-through rates were amazing on that one-second ad format. <laughs> so we, got, we got point nine yes. of a second. Yeah. So yeah. where does it end? So, so, so eventually, yeah. we're, we're basically, this is the most emperor's new clothing I can ever imagine. <laughs> this came out as well, exactly the same time as the Childish Gambino uh, Welcome to America video came out. Effectively went to number one, right, in all charts by the supposedly very same people who have no attention span this politically incendiary video of what four minutes something like that full of hidden meaning stuff that i didn't even understand myself took about six watchings and viewings to kind of see parts of it and it's like apparently these people don't understand anything they can only consume things for like four seconds five seconds it's absurd yeah. the reality is if you produce crap then people will turn off. We have this brilliant, boundless, limitless choice that means capturing attention isn't easy by providing them with crap. If you create something of worth, guess what? They'll watch. I, yeah. saw, I saw literally this morning on our 
Well, the latest film I've just mentioned, the average watch time, I think, is 23 minutes average overall. Yeah, we haven't even got the kind of proper final results yeah. in, but someone else That's is just asking. It's still like, huge. These are young people. Mm. 23 we, minutes average watch time. Yeah. It's not yeah. a problem. You could, well, this, they, this thing we're doing right now. Yeah, it's a, it's this is a great example. Yeah. And we had Missan on the show last week, and From he's the we only person I've ever met that has a Facebook page where his watch times are over one minute on oh, really? average. That's, good. That, that's insane. Like yeah. we're, we're dealing with four to ten second yeah, average yeah. watch times on a lot of the, the main publishers. But one minute, and then, you know, it's premium content. And I'm with you on the, the young people's uh, attention span. When I talk about it, I'm like, this is not their attention span. This is the amount of attention you have to capture them because they're fragmented. They've got a million things they, can be, they can be doing. Yeah. So capture them quick. Yeah. It's not that they're, they're, they have less attention. Yeah. That's not change. It's they're busy. Absolutely. So you have to work harder to earn yeah. their attention. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember a Lord of the Rings episode. But, oh, no, no, um, I don't remember a um, Game of Thrones episode being six seconds. Like, you know, people consume that in longs form. And like, it's, 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 it's beautiful yeah. shot content that people want to talk about and, and drive conversation. I'm sure the content that you produce, the conversation that's ongoing around those pieces and capturing that as well is part of what you guys... It's my favourite thing I will ever engage. The only time I read comments is, is, is seeing the worth that you can... Comments below. Like, you've yeah, created like, formats around attention, which exactly. I think is a brilliant... Like, how so I think it's a dangerous... I don't know. I think, fortunately, I think... A a couple of the platform changes you know even the Zuckerberg stuff that got a little bit um, overshadowed in the Cambridge Analytica problems but that was a whole thing that was about going that was talking about time well spent rather than time spent do you remember mm -hmm. and um and actually, the guy I mentioned earlier, Andrew Sturk, he came up with that, apparently for Facebook. This is about a year ago. But in other words, rather than just being time spent on the platform, it had to be time well spent, i.e. stuff of value. Now, this isn't a Facebook ad. The point is, I am pleased, at least, that the very largest platforms and biggest, whether it be Insta or Facebook, are at least allowing algorithmically to for craft to flourish again, for stuff of worth and value and time to be allowed to kind of exist. And it isn't just a kind of four seconds and we're done and the next and the next and the next yeah. and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa I don't think there's any you, place YouTube that. put emphasis on that as well they do I mean, brilliant their algorithm is largely dictated by watch time and I think in general this is a great opportunity and I think advertising industry the advertising industry should see this as an opportunity to add value because if they can now come away from the six second span and think <coughs> what the hell are we doing to add value to people's life which in turn gives us love and gives us engagement in the long run that's how they should be seeing this. It's an opportunity for change and an opportunity yeah, to do I good. I agree. There was a, one of Phil's questions earlier about young people. We have this we have this um, study we do called the Modern Football Fan, which is out again in January or February, which is all proprietary research. We take two or three months really of quant and qual. We have like all these 17, 18 year olds in our studio for kind of weeks on end doing a real deep diving basically into their habits. And the point is it's quite future facing. It's mm, like, yeah. it's very, very near future. Mm. And last year's one of my favorite quotes of the whole thing was a 17 year old actually said, oh, I'm trying to escape the algorithm. And he's 17 years old even saying <laughs> that. And even using that language is like- I didn't even know what that word was at 17. Right? Yeah, yeah. But you then extrapolate and he's like, yeah, yeah. Point being, I'm 41 and I've just gave up and thought I will only ever live in kind of the world of algorithmically controlled news feeds and streams. Yeah. Not them. They're like, no, 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 I don't want that. I'm looking for Break different free. stuff in different places at different times. I want to go to different platforms and things that feel and look different. It's like, there's never a bigger invitation for a brand or an advertiser when you hear that from a 17 year old yeah. to go make something different. Then. Yeah, Incredible. Absolutely. And when I want to chat a little bit about platforms and channels and how people can approach running a content business, which you guys, I guess, you know, media business now. So you guys did the partnership with Bleacher Support. I remember the Saturdays are lit. Mm, Saturdays are lit. Um, 50 million views, mm. incredible stats. Like, 
what happens when a platform starts? Like, because platforms are changing. So Snapchat, for example, was a big platform for you guys. I think mm. you were one of the first mm. partners. Um, what happens when things start to like? Are you seeing a, a decline now in Snapchat and Instagram? Like, how do you deal with that? And do you shift content? Like, um, be wary what you read in the media. Yeah. Genuinely, actually, so Snapchat is a really good example. Mm. Right? I don't think Snapchat is going anywhere in the next couple of years for a certain audience. Yeah, I think it's gone for maybe people my age who yeah. came in whimsically thought I need to get involved in that and have left as quickly as they came in yeah. but there's still an awful lot of very young uh, people who believe it as in they believe that as their source of authenticity you know what it was born and predicated from legitimacy or being of the moment mm. rather than stage managed and curated and it still exists like yeah that. And yeah, so the num- weirdly, we've not seen the numbers dwindle. We just had a World Cup show that was our, um, which got about 45 million, I think, views over the course of a month on Snapchat out in Russia, 45% of which were female, which was brilliant, and which wow. we're actually really leveraging and thinking because we're doing an awful lot in women's football right now. Yeah. So that's a really important thing. I guess the point is, make your own learnings. Don't just solely assume what yeah. you read in digital yeah. press or even beyond that yeah. is correct. Yeah. Platforms change all the time. Um, everyone knows this, leaving the list of this podcast, no point me yeah. talking about lack of organic reach yeah. and things like that because it's a given. Insta's particularly interesting. Like if you if you start it up right now, yeah. do you go beyond Insta? Like yeah. pretty all-encompassing, right? You've yeah. got a whole lot. It's messaging. You've still got reach. still got an awful lot of organic reach. You pay for it too. You can promote. You've got stories. You've got the vertical. Like quite hard to beat. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? As a one platform yeah. play. But I'm guessing you're, you're never thinking one platform play because no. you are on every channel that no. there is I mean, at the moment. I and mean, you're focused on content, right? So YouTube's still, I imagine, a core part of yeah. What is the platform breakdown? Do outside of IP. Do you know, yeah. we, we genuinely try and keep it as equal as possible um, if relevant, if that makes sense. So we, we, we honestly don't say... So if someone's working on a Snapchat show, it is no less important than working on the 55-minute Derby Days at all. On the contrary, actually, at the moment, it's, yeah. it's arguably even getting more kind of love because it's a really important thing that we're doing. Yeah. Likewise, Insta, we were probably a bit late to the party on, actually. We, we only really kicked on about 18 months ago, and now we are kicking on, mm. and there's a new kind of uh, impetus right this second on there. But um, it, we genuinely have a very equal kind of... Um, uh, sort of democratic if you like look of what we should be making on what platforms we, mm. we still try and have platform promises they evolve all the time in terms of what's most suited and at what times but you know just as you can get on a British Airways tonight uh, and, and watch Couple 90 so you can you know have your own experience on Instagram stories right now if you look at Insta stories probably now mm. it was like we were playing football on Venice Beach in LA like last night and it's mm. a whole series on that and that's completely different mm. to the new episode of Derby Days or yeah a new Island Records Bob Marley film about the Ajax uh, song that gets sung yeah. in the Ajax supporters was the same day like it's a big diet football gives you that yeah. so in a way quite beautifully your story from Holler with building audiences and working in culture you're still doing exactly the same thing but in football it's and actually version, yeah. and actually still working with brands and still Absolutely. doing the things that you're yeah. passionate about and you have the years of experience in so I feel lucky now that it's predicated on a passion that is football I would find that more difficult. To your question earlier about the agency mm. model, it's like, yeah, there's so many similarities. You're working yeah. with brands, you're speaking strategically yeah. to them, you're understanding how to get work mm. out there. But only doing football is so different. Yeah. It reminds me of what my friend used to describe the, when he ran a record label. And he always used to describe kind of a Monday meeting. And at the end of which, he said the entire business effectively pressed the button and they charged towards a common goal at the end of that week, which is effectively getting that artist to number one or whatever their goal for that week was. Yeah. And it feels more like that. Whereas yeah. I felt so sort of disparate and stretched and in a million yeah. different places doing a million different things at agency yeah. on 
one minute you're yeah. working with innocent drinks trying to launch orange juice the next minute you're at Procter and Gamble working mm. on a femcare product and like it's so yeah fragmented it's just yeah. very difficult yeah. to genuinely give 100% to every mm. single one of those yeah. whereas when you've just when you're underpinned by a passion in this sense in this one is happens to be football yeah. it feels like a it's not easier but it's I don't know. It's definitely more rewarding, and it feels yeah. it feels more uh, like an evolved version. I can't imagine the most successful businesses in this space in four or five years won't be put it that way. Yeah. Whether it be, I don't know, clothing brands, or music, or yeah. clothing. I believe yeah. that's very important yeah. that passion bit. Well, I think that's the the kind of heart of the brand entrepreneur is that you're creating a brand with purpose, and people will, will work for it, and they'll probably work longer hours, and they really care. And I think yeah, that's yeah. that's any business that wants to be a business of the future has to kind of tick those boxes, mm. um, and have that wider purpose. Yes. I want to talk. Uh, well, I think we should talk a little bit about individual. We talk a lot about the brands you've built and been part of, and your, your time at Copper. Um, obviously, you've got a young son. You t- touched on that. Um, married. Yeah, I am. How do you and, son. and you're very bit like for me, like you know, we we see each other a couple of times this year, and we you know we're yeah. friends. Obviously, that like, we're good mates, yeah. and like, how do you balance having being an entrepreneur, a business builder, with a family life, and trying to create those two? How do you? Is there a way of doing it? Oh, um, I don't think it's as comparable as it used to be. As in, you know, it, it did used to be the seven days a week obsession. You know, I remember my my now wife. Remember, she said at the time she she recites a, something I said that I am so sort of ashamed of and disbelieved that it was me who said it when we first met. I said, "Here's how it works: Number one is holler my business. Number two will be girlfriend." And I'm like, "I never said it. You bloody did." I guess the point is, when you're 23, 24, 25, whatever, you can probably get away with that. Mm. I'm 41 now. I yeah, I can't. But the, the, we're we're in a fortunate place at the moment where my peers in the leadership and sort of the, the, the management or whatever of Copper 9 CR dads and mums themselves and you know young parents and understand the, the wider kind mm. of landscape work is still just work it's very difficult it's very difficult when you when you work at something like a Copper 90 as you guys will know to ever actually switch it off you know it's yeah. brilliance and beauty is also the thing that you're always your mind is always going you're always writing something down aren't you right Mm. you're always tapping something out you've always had one more idea Mm. that morning which sadly also means you're probably distracted from something else that you might have Mm. should have been doing yeah but i guess that's just something that you choose for a period of your life right yeah it's never easy but it's also not you know i know what you've been up to recently in terms of some of the work that you've been doing you know outside of work Mm. put it that way and Mm. that's real life this Mm. ain't hard yeah no you're right and how do you maintain your energy is there something you've learned because you've been doing this now at a pace for, for 17 18 19, yeah. 20 years of this pace and like no but how what have you learned on that journey for people that were starting out to maintain your energy levels to what is it like go out hard because that energy will wane <laughs> <laughs> um go hard at the start go and hard just, like, and just just see yeah uh my gosh surround yourselves with brilliant people like genuinely like, yeah I think that's I a bloody love that you get you get more enjoyment always about seeing the nurturing or development of someone or even someone you've worked with for years there's a guy I work with now called Paolo that's, yeah. uh, you know and I know, yeah. hired him years ago as a planner at Holler and you know he's like chief strategy officer at 
at um, a copper ninety, and you again you have a real personal relationship that means you just know each other inside out. You don't even need to think about the quality of the work or anything. You know it's perfect. Mm. So you just need you need people like that, like around mm. you, who are fantastic, mm. who can run things. Mm. You need great grown-ups around you. You need brilliant young people that you can empower and get going because you can't do it all. That's for certain. Yeah. You talked about a mentor of yours earlier. Um, how important do you think it is to have people that can give you... I think it's brilliant. Are you, it? Do you still have one? Like, you st- are, you, are you now mentoring? I mean, you helped to mentor us. Yeah. Is it, how do you see that? There's a few people that I see. I don't know if it's mentoring though. I just have breakfast and cups of tea and things like that. And we have chats and I think it's... And it's sometimes beneficial to them. And I think that's lovely. Likewise, I do it the other way up, yeah. But they're more, some are friends. They're all friends in a way, just in slightly different ways, you know. But I know years ago, I always found it important that I needed kind of grey hair around me to tell me things that I didn't know, and I still believe that. A good friend of mine, John Wilkins, he runs um, uh, Karma Armoury, founded Naked. But me and him like watch football together and stuff like that with our kids now. And now and again, you might have a cup of tea, and he's 10 years, I think it is, my senior. So it's a perfect... Mm kind of age gap I think to tell you things that you still might have forgotten or didn't know yet yeah. um, giving giving that back and I don't mean giving back in particular it's not, it doesn't you know it cost nothing to have a breakfast and have a nice conversation but doing that I always find really personally rewarding too because you actually think about things in a way that you haven't maybe thought about them before so it's a nice mm. thing that's the way it should be right yeah. if you're fortunate like enough to do it it's okay. not business related as well I think so many so, people focus on oh you've got a network you've got to do this nah. for business it's actually like the opposite actually it's completely opposite yeah. and I think some of the most rewarding conversations we've had with people like yourselves has been over the yeah. fact that it's not necessarily about yeah. business it's what you learn from each other by yeah I think one of the last London. times I saw Phil over breakfast that's exactly right business is barely mentioned and I mean that in a really good way you're actually talking about I don't know our respective diets we were probably on at the yeah, time yeah. or what sort of you know green juice derivative we're currently <laughs> sort of trying to but the point is I'm being facetious yeah. but it's what it's what's making you at that point it's what life is it's everything yeah. around it right it's, it's not really about the, the yeah. 9 to 5 because that's as important yeah. one thing that I love just personally about you and I think it's really important for some of the lessons that we've had on the people on the podcast as well is that um as much as you give advice you also give over contacts and you're you're nice do you know what I mean you'll introduce somebody to to me and I always thought like when you go into business it's quite hard like people don't help you I think a lot of people go into business like oh no one helps anyone and it kind of I did feel like that at the beginning it really? kind of like me and Matt versus the world and yeah. I remember being in like a real it's switch like that to be honest really? a lot and I, I suppose it depends on what area of business you're going and I feel like you yourself now are in quite a a fortunate place where it's very collaborative right you're collaborating with creators and people all the time and I think that breeds a really good mentality for relationships with different people but I suppose less you've got less competitors right you're not you're not doesn't feel like you're always pitching against somebody or you're trying to outdo someone and I think that's the beauty of people that are building great brands now and doing different things have a more collaborative approach. And I, I like that from YouTube, actually. I learned a lot from watching young creators jumping on each other's videos, grime artists jumping on each other's tracks. It's mm. like... That's cool. That like, spirit, yeah. for me, really resonates. And, yeah. I, and I really see the positive impact. Yeah. And that's why, we start, that. that's why we started this, man. To be honest with you, it was like we knew that people like yourself had given us so much that but it was around our cups of tea. And technically, we can have a cup of coffee with a million people. 
now yeah, I love that. and listen and they can learn from you the what we've learned. The grind brilliant. <laughs> the, the, the feature. I think it's, the Fe- funny the thing is, I think the kind of me versus the world thing is quite good when you're young. And again, I don't mean that in a patronising way, but if you're in your 20s and you're starting up, I think you need stuff to rail against. Yeah. I think you need to also almost stick them on the corner of a wall and go, yeah. but like you did, right? When you, you know, you open this podcast by talking yeah. about an agency that you sort of knew. I mean, that's kind of nice because yeah. you... You have something to go against, and yeah, maybe that does kind of fade. But also, as you get older, you just don't need to hang around with those people. So I'm no, sure that's plenty it. Of, there's plenty of people in advertising you don't like me. I mean, yeah. we've definitely I just, got. Um, I'm just not really with them. We've definitely got a revolution <laughs> and some enemies on our next business. But again, it's. Uh, for but us, there's nothing better than introducing someone and knowing that they get on. Or, you know, we've been a part of networks and WhatsApp groups right now, where entire businesses are formed on the back of kind of meetings from mutual friends and yeah. things like that. That's great, isn't it? That's yeah. Really that, good. I can't think of any other better thing around the industry and yeah. n- the network. Because yeah. I agree, networking from business means is nonsense. Yeah, it's all about getting on with people and realizing there's lovely mm. kindred spirit or commonality, and yeah. then that's cool. Um, cool. So we're going to wrap up. I think now it's been an amazing chat, but we always go um, have a couple of questions, kind of like you know uh, the actionable bits from uh, somebody who um, some questions that we could give straight back to. So we like to have these high fives. We call them. Yeah. Um, Matt, I'll let you kick off. Start by um, a book that you would recommend. Um, Wim Hof. Ah. Becoming the Iceman, right? And it's more that what that leads to. Am I allowed to expand? Or yeah, 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 go for it. All right. Um, I think I listened to Wim Hof on a podcast. If you haven't heard him, he's this absolutely maniac, Germanic character who goes and sits in ice lakes. Yeah. <laughs> this is so difficult to articulate. Man. I love You've it. You've got to read it. Yeah. But it actually got me into... See, I don't think I meditate, but I breathe, mm. right? Like, I'm not... I don't know, you, you know, yeah. you do a bit. And that was a world I didn't know until I was about 40, probably. And that got me into this whole notion, the, the physiology around that and way that takes you. And I don't think, as I say, I'm some expert at all at meditating, but I suddenly realised the importance of breathing, which sounds so stupid. No. But reading Wim Hof is, the guy's amazing. You've got He's incredible. incredible. He's done some great content on YouTube as well. Yeah, and you can get a lot of it for free. You can get a lot of his like, first yeah. lessons for free. I mean, I want to go to a Wim Hof like, course oh, that we go away with him for four that. days. So if you want to do something <laughs> oh next year, God. I'd love to do like a branch entrepreneur <laughs> Wim Hof. We just go over that. there and do the if you, you see know. what they do I know no, but I'll do it like, we'll just do it up like glaciers wearing just their pants but you're pushing yourself out. You, you, you're <laughs> teaching yourself one it's the breathing and it's the oxygenating your blood yeah. but two you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone consistently yeah. you know the cold showers like all that stuff mm. is like really interesting so anyway definitely look into it Wim I'm gonna bar the answer phone from this one okay cool recommended piece of tech uh, it's this it's sound it's audio I, honestly it's the thing I've never been able to live without I think years and years ago when we were starting an internet business and I, I remember being interviewed then in the early years and I, and I they were surprised because my favourite thing was radio but it still is I actually don't think it's ever been better we're sat here mm. right now recording one, which is really appropriate yeah. but yeah I'm, as Phil knows I'm obsessed obsessively listen to the likes of Joe Rogan I think Russell Brand radio is or audio or podcast whatever you want to call it it's just sound yeah. it's just amazing it's the oldest kind of technology and it's arguably at its best and most sophisticated right now the choice is just the most brilliant yeah. thing isn't it it's I do incredible. all of my learning and listening through two hour podcasts there and back during commutes yeah no, so I think no, that's really good. What about the soundtrack to your life? What would be your entrance music in a ring? The entrance music to a ring, I need to I need to admit that once I did a talk with a good friend of mine, Jonathan Fraser, uh, and we were actually given an entrance music. And so I sort of need to say that because it will make him laugh. And what, what, what is more funny, it was Notorious by Duran Duran. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
sort of don't know why now. I guess it was <laughs> ironic. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> One bit of advice that you would uh, give any person, whether they were looking to start a business, whether they were building a brand, or even just going to work for somebody else. Um, the advice I remember when we were at art college uh, actually no before that when I studied fine art did our A level our art teacher said art is all about mistakes and it's kind of sweet and prophetic and completely bloody true Mm. and you know because because you don't have to the lovely thing is when you do things again if you do another business again that feels a bit like your last you don't have to make any of those mistakes again you're going to make new ones and that's Mm. kind of cool because that's how you're going to learn and evolve you don't have to make the same ones again and yeah feels right that's really that. good. That's uh, definitely a poster. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're gonna we're gonna skip we're gonna yeah we're gonna skip the quote because that's a, that's already it. Art, <laughs> art is about I, mistakes. I, I would leave with one thing, and this is something that I think um, resonates with me. But if you were gonna leave a tag on a wall that said something for everybody else, what would that be? I don't know, but the thing is, I do this anyway, not with tagging, but I stick up copper ninety stickers all over town. <laughs> My Instagram is basically a mix of wherever I go in the world is is me being a nasty little vandal and sticking copper ninety stickers on lampposts. So I guess I'm already doing it. That is evidence. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I, I can't do anything like as as grandiose as leaving legacy. I'm just lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I love that man and you're doing some incredible things which is changing the world and it's been a massive pleasure to have you on Branchpreneur with us James um, very much until next time I'm sure we'll do a, a take two of this at some point with women in the room <laughs> uh, Mr Hoff if you're watching we need to get you on or we'll do it live in an ice bucket let's do that um, great I content the ice bucket challenge but the um, ice podcast challenge J- James's last thing where can we find you can we tap like where can we where can people get involved in the conversation obviously with you and find you with online me? yeah with you Spoonie Bear obviously yeah uh, there's a story behind that but it's not good <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that one there that's one for next next podcast uh, check James out on Spoonie Bear check us out on at Branchpreneur I'm Phil Chemish aka Phil Chemish and I'm Sketch <laughs> there you go cheers guys thank you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.